So, thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast, and thank you in particular to Simon Weber for joining me today. Hi, morning. Morning. Um, so, as usual, we'll start off just with a bit of a wrap-up of some of the markets and uh, other newsworthy events recently, and then we'll dig into particular how things have been going um, for performance on the equities side, and also some of the interesting risks and um, opportunities that you're seeing out there right now. So starting with markets, um, I guess equities have been trending weaker of late. Some markets have been well off the highs from the start of the month. So emerging markets suffered the most, down over 8% in local terms, 10% in dollars. Japan, also a relatively poor performer with a 5% decline. Even the US, Europe, up 4% down, and the UK actually slightly better at 25 or so. Um, but on a year-to-date basis still, US, Europe, UK still on double-digit gains. Others less impressive, but we're still we're still in positive territory. In fixed income land, um, the story continues to be of yields grinding lower. So US, UK, core European 10-year yields all down about 30 to 40 basis points this year. And the US 10-year yield recently dipped back below the three-month rate again. Yields everywhere much flatter than they were at the start of the year, and credit spreads have been moving higher too. So if we think about that, the first quarter was characterised by Goldilocks, so growth weak enough that rate hikes were off the table, but not so weak as to cause too many scares for equities. But the bears appear to be growling a bit louder this quarter. Um, perhaps Goldilocks overstayed our welcome, and we've had more of a typical risk-off environment. Government yields down, equities down, credit spreads widening. On the political front, we've just had the elections for the European Parliament. In aggregate, pro-European parties largely held their ground, um, but in a more fragmented style, spread across more parties. The Green parties in particular um, were particularly strong, showing how climate change is actually a serious issue. If you think about the UK, actually, it was a bit of a microcosm of everything Brexit. So incredibly confused and conflicting results. So the party with the most votes and seats by some margin was the newly created Brexit party, led by former former. UK Independence Party leader Nigel Farage. But the counter to that is that actually the combined vote of parties which are pro-Remain was actually greater than that of the Brexit Party. So both sides are claiming the results vindicate their stance and with Theresa May announcing her resignation as Prime Minister and the Conservative Party in a full-blown leadership race, further paralysis looks likely rather than any resolution anytime soon. So starting to think about the markets now, Simon. So after, I guess, the storming start to the year, markets have been much shakier of late. How have you weathered this storm? This um, mini storm, perhaps? Yeah, well, we had had a pretty good start to the year um, across our desk, and we've certainly given a bit of performance back in May. Um, you know, in retrospect, we had... Um, made some portfolio changes to take a bit of money off the table in technology and kind of China related exposures as those were the areas that had performed exceptionally well this year um, you know looking back three or four weeks I wish we'd done more of that but you know overall um, you know we've weathered it you know not too badly but we've given a bit of performance back. Okay and I guess when we spoke to um, Rory previously he said he was quite cautious on prospects for the rest of the year have have we got through the worst? Is that has the recent decline led to a buying opportunity, or is it, is it still something that actually you're you're fairly cautious looking forwards? Um, I, I think it would be complacent, uh, quite complacent, to think that 
the recent correction is significant uh, or significant enough you know are were we and are we to see a continued stalemate or even worsening of the frictions between china and the us on trade um then it's entirely plausible that market equity markets retest the lows we saw in december i mean that was essentially the main driver of the weakness in December um, was the the escalation of the tariffs and the trade war, and if anything, we look to be slightly further, or you know, a number of additional steps have been taken that will be harder to come back from. So, um, you know, we certainly hear from companies all the time they're expecting a better second half and a recovery um, as we go throughout the year. As we get into that second half, if we don't see better environment for trade and confidence to invest, then there could easily be some negative earnings revisions and markets, equity markets suffer. Okay, so that rebound that's expected to come through in earnings might not materialise. And I guess, just to clarify, so if we're going back to hitting the lows at the start of the year, that that could still be looking at the prospect of double digit losses in that, in that kind of uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, we're not saying that that is a given or has to happen it just you know it's an entirely plausible scenario um if we could talk about huawei a bit perhaps in a in a minute but there are plenty of second and third derivative implications that are just starting market starting to become aware of from that decision that um you know could also further put a kind of monkey wrench into the uh, the, the the global economy yeah actually maybe good chance to, to bring that up now i guess huawei's um been an interesting example because i guess it's showing two things one was that this was initially put forward as a national security issue for why the the us was wanting to um uh, have restrictions on them and then now it's turning into it's more perhaps a negotiating tool in the trade trade disputes but technology appears to be in the firing line quite firmly now within those trade disputes and those geopolitical tensions mm-hmm. Do you factor in specific like political risk premiums to actually see certain stock sectors maybe more exposed to that type of um, sensitivity? Um, I think we're going to have to start uh, to do that. Um, and certainly it's one of those variables that needs to be you know, brought into it. Um, you know, the Huawei uh, kind of ban is clearly putting the existence or the future of that company um, at risk, you know, just today, one of my morning emails was from our uh, Taiwan-based analyst who'd been, you know, doing some um, great research, meeting with TSMC and other semiconductor-related companies. There, you know, they're already starting to to be more nervous about the second half of the year. We're, um, you know, picking up that uh, Apple's already seeing some, you know, negative sentiment around Chinese consumers. Not an officially sponsored boycott, but you know, you start to see uh, a reaction to the Huawei. Uh, action, a reaction being sentiment of you know very important Chinese consumer towards a lot of U.S. brands. I mean, this kind of thing can start to affect confidence and companies' investment and and and, and actual fundamentals. I guess that's an interesting point you made there. So we've had we've kind of got some saber rattling between China and the U.S. here, and almost nationalism in terms of rejecting brands that come from particular parts of of the world. Is there a risk that this could spread more widely? Well, you know, I don't want to paint this as the base case, but, you know, it's clearly a concerning outcome if, like, the trust, the global system and the global economy is built on a system of trust and global cooperation and trade. And a lot of long-term issues need that cooperation to be, for them to be dealt with, climate change being one of them, 
um, but just the you know the, the the investment that goes with uh, frictionless trade you know if we start to row back from that and erect barriers and a lack of trust that you will be able to construct a global supply chain or have um, you know a, a technology that won't be um, hijacked for political reasons at certain times then all sorts of companies, consumers and politicians will become more cautious in, in their approach. Yeah, I guess it's, it, given the current political climate, it's also a uh, more challenging one for politicians and regulators to actually navigate when there is a lot of nationalist pressure and mistrust, perhaps, of, of um, overseas um, competitors. Yeah, and as you um, highlighted in the uh, introduction, you know, we have within the European elections um, a really good example of this where we've seen, you know, growing strength in nationalist and uh, populist parties mm. um, and also um, surprisingly strong, um, perhaps surprisingly strong showing from, you know, kind of left of centre uh, parties as well. You know, the Green parties did very well across Europe. So there's almost been this kind of fragmenting political landscape which in some ways makes it harder to get, um, you know, strong leadership and, and and consensus to engage in 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 global cooperation. Okay, I guess against that that kind of slightly challenging backdrop, is that leading you to any changes in the way that you are positioning any of the funds at the moment? Um, I, I mentioned um, earlier that we had have been taking some profits in yeah. technology and China-related um, stocks, so you know we have done a bit of that. Um, we are moving the portfolios a bit more cautiously positioned overall so for example healthcare is a across our global and international funds we're overweight the healthcare sector um you know the pharma sector's had a bit of a tough time year to date in particular because of worries about u.s drug pricing with the presidential election cycle coming into focus in 2020 both democrats and president trump um, like to talk about drug pricing and u.s drug pricing does need reform however um, you know, every sector has uncertainties and in the context of perhaps the greater and growing uncertainties around trade and industrial and markets we think the, the pharmaceutical sector looks quite good value and a relative area of stability that's not as it's not as expensive I'd contrast that with things like real estate or consumer staples which have done very well recently and look quite expensive to us. Yeah actually that on the consumer staple side it's also something to get thinking about the way that debt and leverage factors into some of these as well because some of the more non-cyclical sectors actually have been those that have been taking on the most debt and gearing up the, the, um, more aggressively whereas the, the more cyclical sectors actually have been a bit more restrained on that front is that something that you're keeping an eye on? I think that's absolutely right and certainly within you know every you know industry um, one of the things that is central to our the way we approach things through our fundamental risk framework on the team is um, is leverage it's the, mm -hmm. got the biggest weight in our risk framework um, even within a sector like consumer staples where you th you think the companies can take some debt because they have fairly stable revenue streams um, we've been quite cautious around those that have been the most levered so for example uh, AB InBev, the biggest brewer in the world, you know their cost-cutting and leverage combination has proved quite toxic in the last couple of years, um, and there are other examples of that. In general, we um, don't think it's the right p time in the cycle to be having a lot of leverage on top of your on top of your equity. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, moving on to just change gear a little bit, thinking more around um, thematic investing. Um, it's um, a, a big area of focus for Schroders. 
the disruption fund is very much um, at, the, at the core of that. Um, we heard from Rory um, on the previous uh, last month actually about um, potential disruption in the financial sector, which I think was was really interesting. I think one of the useful things that we can do in this call is provide some additional information and colour which our sales forces can then use when they're in meetings with clients. So are there any other interesting examples or um, ones that people may not be as familiar with that would be worth highlighting around disruption in particular? Um, yeah, there's you know perhaps a couple of topical examples I'd kind of give outside of technology. Uh, you know, first would be you know the tobacco industry, uh, probably last yeah. last place you'd think about um, in disruption because people it's an addictive product and it's been a stable oligopoly for decades now. But we have new technology, um, heat not burn, or these non-combustible products, um, vaping or e-cigarette products. They're really beginning to take that market by storm and be quite disruptive. There's been a new entrant called Juul, yeah. um, private company that Altria have taken a stake in, and Philip Morris International with their um, ICOS product uh, taking you know, very significant share, first in Japan and Korea and now in European markets like Germany, Italy, mm-hmm. um, You know, which is really beginning to disrupt those companies that don't have that technology so there's some incumbents there losing quite considerably and, and we one of the companies we like on that theme is Philip Morris International um, we think the banking industry is increasingly looking like one of the next big ones to be disrupted um, quite it's harder to invest in because a lot of the companies are private and it's an interesting story in the Financial Times today um, the bank called New Bank, which is funded by Tencent, digital only platform in Brazil, and they're now going into Mexican banking market um, and really trying to shake up that cozy oligopoly in in Mexico. And there's a number of digital platform banks in Europe and, and fintech payments platforms that are beginning to attack those profit pools um, in the banking industry and making life you know tough for them. I guess that's worth the challenge, as, as I guess you made there, is that a lot of these are private companies still. Does that then mean it's something you just have to have a watching brief on to, until when the opportunities become alive? Or is it the kind of companies that actually you're looking, well, who might be the acquirer of these within the incumbents in the public market? Yeah, I mean, it'd be great when some more of these companies do come to the public markets, but they're already... Um, you know, really interesting companies in kind of payments and accounting. I mean, there's an Australian software company called Zero, accounting software company called Zero. Um, they they do the accounting backbone for lots of small businesses in the UK, US, and Australia, and they're now beginning to process payments for those small businesses. And that's business that the banks would have had before, and now it's shifting to a software company. Um, so there are. There are companies we can invest in. Tencent is backing this, you know, this digital, yep. you know, bank in Brazil and Mexico. Um, you just have to be, um, you know, be be looked very, very extensively to find them. Okay. Um, and final point I want to raise, um, it's just around the UK because I know that um, the, we've had a view that the UK market has been fairly attractively valued. There's a large percentage of earnings which come from overseas. It's very international. So there's a lot of things which get a tick in the box for the UK despite all of our kind of ongoing Brexit uncertainty but is is it a necessary condition for there to be some resolution of Brexit for actually any of that to, to actually matter? Um, I think it probably is. Um, the global multinationals you know we have a number of in our portfolios like Diageo you know some of them have been doing incredibly well and they don't 
necessarily trade that cheaply to a global counterpart anymore. Okay. But the real value in the UK equity market is more in those domestic earnings where uh, they would be challenged in a hard Brexit scenario. Um, we had taken the view that that was becoming less and less likely. It's clear that part this parliament will not um, want to support a no-deal Brexit. And um, so we have been adding some domestic earnings, companies like uh, Lloyds Bank, um, you know, we bought over the, the last few months. So we do see value there. It will probably take a, a deal on a resolution or a clearing of this uncertainty for UK stock, domestic stocks to do better. Um, but you know we think it, you're being paid to be a bit patient, and certainly in six, twelve months' time, things will be clearer. And although there's a tail risk scenario of a no deal Brexit, it's much more likely that a new deal will be agreed, or a second referendum will be held, um, and you know the UK will have a new relationship with Europe on on reasonable terms. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so thank you very much, Simon, for joining us on today's um, podcast. Just to sum up, I guess the two. Um, uh, main points I would say would be firstly although markets have sold off actually there's there's a fair amount of downside risk out there still especially around the geopolitical situation so um, we need to be on guard for that and partly as a result of that we've been shifting some of the emphasis towards more defensive sectors um, particularly those which are um, we think can weather that storm a bit be- better so healthcare pharma away from the more leveraged stocks as well Okay, thank you very much, Simon, and thank you very much for everybody for joining us today.